Tech Talk with Matthew Dickerson. Matthew Dickerson. Tech Talk. Sit back and relax. It's time to talk technology. Hello out there to all our fellow Gizmo groupies. Welcome to your weekly news fix right here at Tech Talk with Matthew Dickerson. And here he is, the guru of the gadgets. Here's Matty. How's your week been, Matt? Uh, yeah, pretty good. And one of the things that was interesting this week was I met with the superintendent of our local police area. And we're talking about a whole range of things, but I did want to talk a bit about the technology that's in use these days. And one of the comments that he made was I reckon that, it'd be like a spaceship in there right now. Well, it is. And he said that almost, almost every police car is a police station. The access to information that they've got in the police car is almost as good as the access to information back in the police station. Yeah, you wow. remember in the old days when you might get pulled over by a policeman for a random breath test, never for speeding, of course, mm-hmm. and then ask for your licence, and then they might go back to the car and they do something magical. Normally it was just a phone call back to the police station to just <laughs> get someone to check that licence was valid or check something on that particular licence, whereas now they've got access to all that information, but the single greatest advance that the superintendent believed has made a difference to policing now is the technology in cameras. So they've got cameras Mm. in the car, they've got cameras on their body, but the next development, and this is in a trial phase at this stage, but probably won't be that far before it's rolled out, is a 360 degree camera view from that car. So when a car is stopped or even when a car is driving along, it's recording what's happening at every single angle around that car. So if they're chasing someone, if they pull over someone, it doesn't matter what happens, that car is like a mobile camera that's capturing everything that's happening around it. So run away, run in any direction, try and drive off, do whatever you want to do, you're being captured somewhere. And even just the body cam, the belief from the police is that the body cam modifies dramatically the behaviour of the individual being questioned because they know... They're being caught on camera. Oh, yeah, of course. And they've seen some show on TV where Judge Judy or someone's watched some footage of some person being a complete idiot, and they've got a camera facing straight at them, and they still do it. So the belief from the police is that when they're sitting there looking at that camera, they think, hmm, do I really want to be on Australia's Home Videos (laughs) or or on some police show or just on YouTube? On the police show, yeah. Or do I want to be a bit more sensible and not a complete idiot here? (laughs) How about I just answer the questions and then on we go. The other thing that's interesting is in terms of those cameras and the police, I I did speak to a, a previous superintendent once and he talked about CCTV. And he said no CCTV in this particular area had been used in the last 10 years in the courtroom. I found that fascinating. I thought, surely. And then he went on to say that once a perpetrator of a crime or an alleged perpetrator of a crime watches the footage, they're usually prepared to sign the confession. (laughs) (laughs) So it's not usually... So it's not that they don't use the the footage, it's just that it never makes it to the court. Doesn't need to because the person (laughs) says, oh, how am I going to argue against that in a court of law? I'm going to look pretty silly. How about... Where's yeah. the confession again? I'll Goodness just watch the footage yeah. and I'll say exactly what I did because I can see it now. And there you go. There's my signed confession. So it obviously makes a huge difference. And, of course, we know cameras are getting better. The storage mm-hmm. capabilities, that's the big thing. Storage yeah. and battery technology on cameras are getting better all the time. So I suppose the message there is don't expect to get away with it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> You're on camera. Now, thumbing through today's hit list, I see we've found a couple of snippets for fans of the solar age. As it turns out, those deniers who'd have us believe that solar tech had no future will be kicking themselves for two more reasons in about half an hour's time. I see that Mercedes-Benz, who have been at the forefront of petrol car technology for near on 100 years now, 
uh, they're giving the EV business a bit of a shake-up as well. And there's a story here for footy fans of all codes, as players' game shirts are set for a 21st century makeover. But let's get rolling on our top, top story tonight. Got mouse problems? Don't we all? Well, get down off your chair, folks. It could all be just a question of angles. Of course we're talking computer mice or computer mouses. This is Tech Talk, not Harry's Practice or Landline or what have you. RSI is set to become a thing of the past as Logitech seeks to revolutionise the friendly little keyboard companion and flip it fair on its side, Matt. Absolutely flipping it on its side. And it's interesting, it does... It makes me think of that expression, build a better mousetrap and the, the world will be at a path to your door. Of course, that's a normal mousetrap for a animal version of the mouse we're talking about. I always remember as build a better mousetrap and Mother Nature will build a better mouse. But anyway. <laughs> well, that's that's absolutely right as well. well because Mother Nature hasn't built this. No, no, Mother Nature hasn't. But Mother Nature's built us, which has built this. But there's 4,400 mousetrap patents in the US. So obviously people have tried to build lots of better mousetraps over the years. But mm. in terms of mouse that we use on a computer, we've seen some developments in some areas, but it's still that same basic concept where you've got a physical device that you hold your hand over more or less in a horizontal plane and then mm. and obviously sit it on there. Now, things have progressed. Obviously, we used to have the old ball and the original mice that was really good at collecting lint off your yeah. desk. <laughs> if you had any lint yeah, or dirt yeah, there, yeah. roll that around for a while, then you turn it over and go, oh, look at all that stuff collected. We've got different ways of tracking movement now. Laser mice obviously are very efficient, except on glass. I find sometimes in a motel room yeah, there when you've got that glass desk. You just can't use it on Yeah, your... that's right. So you've got to find a bit of paper to sit it on there. But that's progressed. The number of buttons on the mouse, they've progressed. Hmm. We went from a single button to a couple of buttons to now a button yeah, for your thumb. A little wheel there as well. I wheels. love the wheel. But this is actually called a vertical mouse. Now, when I first saw this concept of vertical mouse, I imagined the whole idea that you lift it up, lift for it example, up, yeah. to go up the screen. And it's quite amusing, but I've done training in years gone by for some of our older residents. And when you sit down with someone and they've never used a mouse before and you say, move the mouse up the screen, they do lift the mouse up. So when you start to break it down, and, and I've actually seen this almost thought process as they Surely go. Surely not in 2022, though. Well, it's be, it'll be hard to find someone who hasn't used a mouse, a mouse now. now. And this yeah, is some yeah, training yeah, I've yeah. done many yeah, years ago. Yeah, okay. So back in the 90s and early 2000s, maybe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. but it is actually quite unnatural. When you move a mouse forward. horizontally across the desk forward, and that translates to a vertical cursor going up the screen yeah. it's not natural it's a bit like the rub the tummy pat your head yeah. sort of idea you have to be taught that yeah that has to once you learn it it becomes natural but for, and i've seen it i've seen it in training courses where i've said to people move it up and that's what they do they they <laughs> want to move the physical mouse up so i imagine when i started reading about a vertical mouse that that's what i was going to see finally a mouse we move through the air but it wasn't that it's actually just changing the angle of your hand so rather than have it horizontal on a desk turn it if you imagine not quite 90 degrees, but getting close to 90 degrees around. Sort of like a handshake. A angle. handshake, exactly right. If I was shaking your hand, about the angle my hand would be, and that's how this mouse sits. The idea is, as you mentioned, RSI, less RSI. The hand sits there more naturally because you're not twisting your hand over and, and your wrist and obviously your whole arm there. It's at a more natural angle. You've still got a couple of buttons for your two, your pointer finger and your middle finger. You've still got a button for your thumb. You've still got a scroll wheel. So all those things are there, but it's like the mouse has been turned on its edge. Yeah, right. Will this be the mouse that we'll all be using in 20, 30 years' time, in, in two or three years' time? Who knows? But the early reports, 
and these are generated by the manufacturer, so <laughs> oh, right. take a grain of salt and, and dabble <laughs> on top. But the early reports are that it does reduce the not so much the RSI, it's probably too early to tell that, but just reduces the fatigue that you experience in your hand as you use the mouse and move the mouse around. So yeah, okay. it's an interesting concept because we haven't really seen much of a shake-up. 1964 was the first mouse. It wasn't really in common usage until about 1984. Did you, did you say 1964? 1964 was the first mouse. That was the wow. first mouse that was created, the, the first prototype. I think that patent came through a few years later, around about 1970 was the actual patent, but 64 was when they designed that first mouse. But mice didn't really get used until, I think it was the Macintosh, wasn't it? Yeah, 84, yeah. I'd say early yeah, right, 84, okay. probably January 84 it might have been, when the when Apple introduced the Mac, obviously that graphical user interface for a PC yeah, was okay. big. Yeah. And then, of course, Windows the next Windows, year, yeah. 985, Windows 85, of course, came out. Towards the end of the year, if I had to guess, it would be probably November 85 was when the when Windows 85 came out. And so that was really the start of you and I, of, of normal users using a mouse. Mm. Before that, there were some computers that were using them in, in certain examples. But, yeah, essentially, you had that graphical user interface. That's when we started seeing that mouse. But it really hasn't changed much. Even go back to 1964, the concept and how we hold our hand has been about the same until mm. now, yeah. until we've got the vertical mouse. So keep an eye out for that. That's a revolution. Give one a go and just see how it goes. I, I think it's worthwhile having a play with and just seeing how it feels. Yeah. yeah. Interesting. Very interesting, yeah. Now, Matt, I've got a question for you. When do you reckon numbers first started to appear on the back of footy jerseys? On footy jerseys? Now, it depends what you define as footy jerseys. Okay, well, footy- let's say any sort of football. Soccer, rugby league, rugby union, Aussie rules, American gridiron. Yeah, so rugby league, I reckon it appeared in 1908. Did you? That's Did my you guess. Reckon? That'd be my guess. Have you done some research there? Well, no. I've done a bit of research. I'll tell you that rugby league was uh, with the first set in Australia. Yep. Um, yeah, in New South Wales um, in 1911. 1911. Okay. Yeah. Because I thought, I thought a rugby league started in New South Wales in 1908. Well, yes, but they weren't wearing numbers on the back oh, of jerseys, okay. right? There you go. Uh, and the VFL came on board in the same year. Right. So Aussie Rules and, and uh, NRL. Well, here's the next question. When do you reckon they started using numbers on the back of soccer jerseys in uh, in the UK? Yeah, right. That, that, well, probably wouldn't be long after. It'd have to be 1920s, 1930s. Oh, well, 1928 in, uh, oh, in fact. And then the US came on board later on in the 50s. I think it was about 52 um, that they came on wow. with their numbers on the back of the jerseys in gridiron. And I suppose from a spectator perspective, you wanted it on there as early as possible in the grand so you could actually see the players. So I'm surprised. So you could long. work out who was who and yeah. whatnot. With TV audiences, it's probably not as important because you've got commentators telling you the player's name and you can see them up much closer. That's but when right. you're seeing the grandstand, I thought it would have been much more important 100 years ago than yeah. maybe today. Well, it's a, you know it's been a big tradition. And I guess you're asking, folks, where am I going with all this? James, well, where are you going with all this? Well... At a professional level, numbers, they've become a little bit obsolete outside of tradition. That's that's at the high levels, as you were just saying. So fans and commentators and umpires, they all use names now. Even the umpires, they're not really taking people's numbers so much as, as they know the, the players' names. So in the US college football competition, some teams are now going for, get this, QR codes and Twitter handles. Matt, I've got to ask the question... What the football? (laughs) So this is the University of Central Florida. Now, they did actually try Twitter handles last year on the back of players' jerseys. Again, the logic, I suppose, here is that if you're watching them on TV, 
you don't really need this big number to go, oh, let me look in the program. Mm. Number 28 is Billy Bloggs. You can see them up close enough watching on TV that you can see the player and you can see the actual player's name. So they tried Twitter handles and this is a way to help the players promote themselves because if they came to this particular university, then they might have a better chance of some of the self-promotion or some contracts down the track. So they thought Twitter handle might be a way to do it. They found it didn't work that well because it didn't necessarily tell the person their name. So your Twitter handle may be, I am fantastic at science, but it may not be James Eddy. So you had to kind of link the two together. Yeah, right. So they've gone an extra step. They've said, let's put the name back on the jersey and let's go for a QR code on the jersey. Yeah, is that amazing? It is. Now, I'm intrigued by this because I think if I'm in the grandstand, I've got no hope of scanning a QR code of a player out in the field. <laughs> so almost forget about that. If I'm at home watching on TV, maybe I could see up close on a jersey and mm. I could actually then scan the QR code. Well, a lot of TVs can pause as well. And oh, exactly right. So the QR code is a bit useless if I can't scan the QR code. Mm. So I think it sounds like a marketing ploy to get you and I to talk about it on Tech Talk. That seems <laughs> like a, the, the base of all of this. Yeah, So, and we are talking about their football team now. That's right, exactly right. Who, who knew that we were going to talk about UCF, the University of, Calif- Cal- sorry, University of Central Florida's football team, except the fact they've got QR codes in their jerseys. <laughs> but it's the way things are going where you want access to information. So when you scan that QR code, what do you get? You get all this information about that player. So if you think, gee, I haven't seen that player before. He looks like he's playing really well. I wonder who he is and what his background is. You scan the QR code. You find out previous teams he might have played for. You find out some information about him, where he came from. All sorts of information, which is really important to help market that individual player and hopefully Mm. get that bigger contract or even just some marketing dollars for some sponsorship dollars, whatever it might be. But this is where we're headed now. We're going to QR codes. Well, maybe we have pre-game and post-game rituals where the players have to stand still for a little bit and just <laughs> with their back to the camera. And, and, just a, 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 and so people can choose which QR code they're going to scan. Right. They, yeah, right. A graphic comes over, scan me or something. Half-time. So. Everyone's got to line up and, and wait for the camera to get a good shot of their back. Well, and the manager that was actually talking about this at the announcement had a QR code on the front of his shirt. So ah. he was on message, obviously, with that. But that might make more sense. If I walk up to a player now and I say, get me an autograph, well, that's a bit old-fashioned. It's all about a selfie now. So getting a selfie with a player, and if they had a QR code on their front as well, you'd be able to look at more information about that particular player later on. So it's different. I think it's a bit of a marketing gimmick. I don't see great practical usage of it, but it's one of those things, James. We now know what a QR code is. The world knows what a QR code is. Let's use them. So in another 50 years' time, there'll be some people talking about, so when do you think the first QR code was on the back of a jersey? (laughs) On the back of a jersey. Uh, Note it down, folks, 2022. Now, in retrospect, all the greatest innovations seem so obvious. The things that really are worth picking up, well, they just make sense, and you wonder why you didn't have that thing years ago. Matt, as a pair of keen gadget watchers, it's like the next big thing is just staring at us in the face, jumping up and down, waving its arms. It could be worth millions of dollars, but I'll be blowed. I can't see it. What am I missing now? Why didn't we think of this one, James? Charging up batteries for various devices. You've got the battery, you've Mm. got the device it's in, but finding that charger when it's a proprietary charger is always a pain. There's always a different battery for each different device. So, yep. Why not build 
the actual charging port into the battery. Doesn't that just make sense? And cut out the middleman. Cut out what? the middleman. That's exactly right. I can't so believe don't we didn't try and invent find, this ourselves. That's right. Don't try and find that charger. Plug straight into the battery. And then more importantly, how charged is it? Well, obviously the charger tells you how charged it is, but why not just put a couple of little lights on the battery on itself, the battery so you can mm. press a button and just get a bit of an indicator about how charged that battery is. It just seems so <laughs> obvious. <laughs> and, and why hasn't everyone done this? That's right. So this is exactly what Nightcore have now done. Now, Nightcore specifically make batteries that suit the Sony camera range that are uh, obviously a third-party battery, not the genuine Sony battery. A genuine Sony battery has its ability to store, you know, it's got a certain milliamp hour rating and it needs the proprietary charger from Sony. Or you can also plug in to the actual camera itself and charge while it's in the camera, which is okay if you've got that camera in a convenient spot to charge while you're using it, but that's not always that convenient. So Nightcore have introduced a range of batteries to suit a range of Sony cameras, and they've got a USB-C port directly in them. We've got some lights on them, a little button. Yeah, and the only, all makes sense. It does. The only thing we're missing out on is the physical equivalent size battery. In one example, the Sony battery is 2280 milliamp hours. The Nightcore equivalent is 2250, so we're losing a minuscule amount of charge for the convenience of obviously having that USB-C charger yeah, built in wow. and the lights built in. So they've kept the size the same. Yes, we've lost a little bit of capacity, just a little tiny bit, but that bit of capacity lost for the convenience of the charger straight in there, the lights on there, it makes sense. Cut so, out that middleman and, um, yeah, I, I, I love the life. idea. And let's get to the point where lots of manufacturers start catching on to this idea. Drones are another thing I think of, I know, with my drones. And one of the drones I've got, the battery itself is fairly large, so you do have lights on there to show how charged it is, but you're still having to fiddle around with other chargers and mm. unplug from that and plug into that and make sure you've got it all with you and forget about all that. The other thing I love about USB-C is that I've got a separate 240-volt and cigarette lighter adapter for yeah. my drone battery so I can charge up at home or charge up in the car while I'm driving around. USB-C very common. I've got USB-C ports in my car. I've got USB-C leads it always It just makes me. sense. Just plug straight in and away <laughs> you go. So. Well, we, we've like, we've got a pair of hair clippers. I've just realised at home a pair of hair clippers that are running low on batteries now and we can't find the charger <laughs> for it. <laughs> you know, <laughs> they're redundant. That's you right. Know, it, it's, the clippers now might as well go in the bin. That's right. For the sake of a little tiny charger that's worth 20 bucks that you probably can't <laughs> find anywhere, just build it in. So I look forward to seeing more and more batteries come out with this technology built straight in. And now we've got to think of something else that's really obvious to invent. That's you right. And I. Yeah, we'll work on that. <laughs> Well, he spent a bag of cash developing his flotilla of satellites, but the real challenge for Elon Musk and his Starlink armada has always been to attract the attention of big business and get them to sign up. And so the good people of Delta Airlines in the US have stepped forward and may now become the first airline to lean into the new service as their new internet provider. Matt, passengers want to stream and for a cabin full of customers, that, that means some serious bandwidth is needed. Is Starlink really a viable option? Well, it might be, but before we go there, what I do love is the fact that it was only a few years ago we'd got into a plane and we were told by 
the turn off your phones. That's right. Turn the, the crew was there. Turn off your phones. Turn off. Go into airplane mode. The fact that manufacturers actually built a specific airplane mode yeah. to be able to turn off all the transmissions <laughs> that come out of your phone because it's dangerous and it's going to make the plane crash and it's a terrible thing. Yeah. It's a it's a world catastrophe. And of course, there was no proof anywhere and in all the scientific testing. There's no proof that a mobile phone would do any damage to a plane or affect its navigation or its mm. flight. But anyway, we were told to turn it off until the airlines worked out a way they could make money out of it. And then they said, it's okay to leave it on. <laughs> and of course, you play your war dragons now. <laughs> as a simple consumer on that plane, I said, what magnificent breakthrough do we make that we can now use this device on the plane that was before dangerous? And of course, the cabin crew give me a blank stare and don't know what I'm talking about, but yeah. we can make money out of it, there so let's leave it again. on. <laughs> Just step away quietly. That's, that's right. <laughs> so... We've seen planes, and it's been a little while since I've flown internationally because of obviously COVID, but some international planes, in fact, some local planes, were using some geostationary satellites to connect the plane to the internet. Mm. And of course, we've talked about geostationary before, about 35,786 kilometres above the Earth, long way away. And then what I find fascinating is you've got this plane sitting at somewhere in the vicinity of, say, 34,000 feet, doing maybe 900 kilometres an hour, and it's managing to actually have a connection that's consistent Mm. somewhat to a geostationary satellite above the Earth. I just find that Absolutely fascinating. But, of course, the experience wasn't great. You'd get on the plane. If you were the only yeah. one on the plane that was using it, it was probably it was okay. Fine, but you just couldn't get the bandwidth. Is that right? That's right. So, yeah. so if you've got 200 passengers and they're all jostling, <laughs> trying to stream right. their own videos. Yeah, I was actually saying to the cabin crew, can you go back and tell them to turn all their phones off so I can use the internet? <laughs> <laughs> so it was probably good for uh, emails. I fi- found that if you just enter a few emails, yeah. they'd upload and they'd take a couple minutes to upload or download some. But if you wanted to do something like watch anything where well, you need a bit of bandwidth, absolutely no mm. hope at all. Now, Starlink, we know, a couple of big differences with Starlink. Low Earth orbit satellites for a start, yeah. LEO, they're around 300 to 500 kilometres above the Earth, so not 36,000, mm. a few hundred kilometres. Yeah, so that signal's only got to bounce backwards and forwards a short distance. Exactly yep. right. And then lots of them because, as we know, geostationary sits at one point above the Earth. Yeah. Low Earth orbit is spinning around. and Leasing around once every uh, hour and a half, I think. It, it depends exactly the height, but yeah. yeah, around that sort of time frame. And then lots of them... For two reasons. One, you want to have consistent coverage, so you don't want to wait another hour and a half before you can get on the internet <laughs> again. But also, with lots of satellites, you can increase that bandwidth. So yeah. that's fantastic. So now, Delta is the first airline that started these trials where they're going to connect to Starlink, and they're doing the trials with that, but presumably at some point in the future, we'll get on a plane and we'll be connected, not knowing, we'll be connected to the plane's Wi-Fi, but that'll be connected to a Starlink satellite. Now, I still find the technology fascinating where you've got a Starlink satellite going past at a fairly rapid rate, and you've got a plane going along at, say, 900 kilometres an hour, whatever the rate might be, and to have a connection between those two. And if you looked at a Starlink satellite dish that you'd put on your house, it's not a little tiny thing. It's a reasonable-sized device. Now, they don't go and stick one of those satellite dishes (laughs) on top of the plane. Mightn't be that aerodynamic, but just that connection is fascinating. So let's not talk about that in depth because that's pretty cool technology there, but just the fact that you'd be able to have all these people on a plane, and they're talking about the fact that you can get streaming service. Now, Netflix, for example, recommends about 5 megs per second for a good streaming service. Multiply that by maybe 200 passengers, you need a fair bit of bandwidth there to have all these people on the plane. Now, realistically, not everyone's going to be using a streaming service on the plane at the same time. But if they're building this to say that we can have this, and let's go further than that, you start to go on Airbus A380, you're talking about more than 200 passengers, you're talking about up to 500 passengers. So, wow, trying to get... If they all want to play Fortnite or... (laughs) 
That's right. Call of Duty or whatever. It's just going to be a huge amount of bandwidth. But that's the sort of technology that we're getting to. So I expect to see companies like Starlink, and there's other ones as well, but companies like Starlink using this sort of technology and planes using this sort of technology to be able to get better bandwidth. Because let's face it, it's not the real world if we can't use the internet at decent speeds. <laughs> it used to be you'd get on the plane and go, I've got a break for an hour and a half. It's yeah. okay. But no, now you've just got to be in contact everywhere all the time. All the time. There's no excuses for not being in contact. Yeah. Wow. Now with Tesla now building cars in Germany, the locals are now well and truly wound up and ready for a fight. So Mercedes-Benz have thrown down the gauntlet with their new model EV, the Vision EQ XX. Have I said that right, Matt? It's, or would you say XX? Uh, EQXX. Yeah, I don't know. I, I was actually more thinking about the Mercedes versus Mercedes question. Oh, Mercedes-Benz or Mercedes-Benz. It's always been Mercedes for me. I'm yeah, really right. sorry. It is the letter E in the middle of the word, so that kind of makes sense to be Mercedes, not Mercedes. But you've said Mercedes all your life, I presume. I think I think I have, yeah. Mercedes-Benz. Mercedes yeah, I think Benz. I have. I just have, have to think back to all those old sale of the century uh, episodes where you've bought, got a brand new Mercedes-Benz. I've go. been saying it wrong. So Tony's taught me wrong, has he? Is that what you're saying? No, no, no. There you go. Well, anyway, um, they've never been comfortable as followers, at least. So how have they stepped up the EV game, Matt? Well, this one, the EQXX, or double X, is a concept car at this stage, but they are actually a little bit, oh, look at their nose out of joint, mm. about Germany letting Tesla, an American company, come in and build a gigafactory in Germany. What are you doing to us, German government? <laughs> Why don't you just block them? Don't you know we've got BMW and yeah, VW cool, and yeah. Mercedes-Benz? You've got these great car manufacturers here. Just tell Tesla to go away. But of course they haven't. And they'll start producing Teslas out of the gigafactory there. And that'll really shake up the market. So MB, we'll call it, rather than say Mercedes or Mercedes, <laughs> MB have said, we'll show off what we can do. So they've taken a car, again, a concept car, but they use all their technology from Formula One. And obviously they're very good at Formula One. And they've said, let's just take the same size battery as a Model S, for example. So a 100 kilowatt hour battery. Let's not cheat by putting a huge battery in it and then saying, look at the great range we've got. So we know that Tesla, the Model S, has got about 650 kilometers of range. So good old MB said, let's see what we can do on a single charge with a 100 kilowatt hour battery in the real world. So they built a car. You can imagine from Formula One, aerodynamics is a huge thing. Yeah. When you're doing 300 kilometres an hour, you want to make sure that car is as slippery as possible. And so they've got some great wind tunnel capabilities there. And so they built this car to be very slippery for a start. It's a normal looking sedan. I mean, it's a good looking sedan, but it's a it's a normal sedan. Not looks like doesn't look like a Formula One car. So the first thing they've done is made it incredibly aerodynamic. Then they've used lots of materials that are very light. Again, probably a lot of carbon fibre in it, using that Formula One technology again. And then they said, let's go and take this car, use all this great technology, regenerative braking. We use some of those things in other areas and see what we can do. So they then took it for a drive through Europe. They took it on autobahn, 140 kilometres an hour. Now we've talked about it before. Double your speed, quadruple your air resistance. Mm. So speed, higher speeds, real killer for range in an EV. Let's take it through the Alps because, again, if you've got a heavier car, a big battery, you've got to go it's up. It's really hard to, hard to get it high up. Yeah, yeah you're yeah. fighting that gravity. Yes, you are reclaiming some of that as you come back down again, but let's give it this real-world test. So they did a test. They went through 140 kilometres an hour. They went through the Alps. They had an average speed of 87 kilometres an hour. And they got to a thousand kilometers and said, we've still got about 100 Ks, a bit more than 100 Ks left wow. on the range. So they're talking about a car with 1,100 kilometers of range 
out of a 100 kilowatt hour battery. Now, most EVs, when you talk about fuel consumption in a car, you might say five litres per 100 kilometres is pretty impressive, 10 or 15 might be an old V8, whatever. The the number that you normally hear around EVs is 20 kilowatt hours Mm. per 100 kilometres seems to be a number that many cars use. So when they're quoting their range, if they've got, for example, a 60 kilowatt hour battery, they might get to 300 kilometres. If they can do a bit better than that 20 kilowatt hours per 100 kilometres, then obviously they get a bit better range. But this, we're talking about 100 kilowatt hour battery and getting 1,100 kilometres, yeah, wow. then you're starting to get an incredibly efficient, you know, you're talking about better than 10 kilowatt hours per 100 kilometres, which is kind of half what other manufacturers typically have as a as a norm, if you like, of that 20 kilowatt hour. But in all practicality, here in, in somewhere like New South Wales, that you are going to drive a certain distance and maybe after 400 kilometres, if you'd pushed yourself that far, you might stop and get a charge. That would at least give you a chance to, to give a, a top-up charge to go some further distance. I think the, the excuses are getting less and less. Oh, they are. And you're, you're absolutely spot on. People do sensibly drive smaller distances and either go and have a coffee or go to the toilet or fill it with petrol. So mm. you, you want to break that drive up. And that's what happened with an EV, I know, in my experience. You do those drives, you might only go 200 kilometres, have a little break, just a five-minute break, quick top-up charge, grab a coffee, keep going. Yeah. But again, people have this thing in their head, I want to get 1,000 kilometres. I don't know why 1,000 is such a magic <laughs> number, but it's got four digits as opposed to three digits in it. Sydney to Melbourne in one hit, and I don't want to stop. I don't. Well, in fact... Not many petrol cars could do that, but you could yeah. now in this particular car. Yeah, wow. When they even went as far as getting Bridgestone to make them special low resistance roll or low resistance tires or low rolling resistance tires to make the range even better. So every little trick they could come up with, they've done. Now I don't imagine they're going to release the EQXX in its current form. I think they're showing of what they can do. Look at us, we're MB, we can do all sorts of exciting things. <laughs> but Tesla can build their cars here, but we'll build something better. That's right. But I think, and they've got a few EVs coming out, Mercedes-Benz, but I think what we'll do is we'll see some of the technology that's been used here in some of those production models. I mean, things like low rolling resistance tyres makes sense. So mm. why wouldn't you have those? I know Tesla has Michelin tyres, but they have Michelin tyres that are their normal tread, their normal tyre, but there's a special code when you order new tyres for a Tesla that's the Tesla version of those same Michelin tyres. The difference there is they actually have some foam inserted inside the tyre. They're more worried about noise than the mm. rolling resistance. So that just reduces the noise because when they did their testing, they found the car is so quiet people actually hear the tyres more than they would in a normal car. So they put some compression foam inside there just to reduce that noise. So there is a special tyre that has been developed for Tesla, but not low rolling resistance. So all these little tricks there, yeah, we'll see maybe not all in one car apart from a concept car, but maybe all in different models as we go forward. The other thing they've done, which is something that everyone asked me about, in fact, over a, a recent weekend, I was over visiting some of my relatives, and the first thing they said is, oh, you've got an electric vehicle, how come it doesn't have solar panels on the roof? Oh. And I told them the old magic surface area is the reason yeah. they don't. But this car actually had solar panels on the roof, but all the solar panels were used to do was to power some of the technology in the car, some of the things that ran off battery, but they power the tech rather than trying to recharge the battery because you just don't have enough surface area Mm. to do anything decent with that surface area you've got and the size of the battery. Yeah, very interesting. And trust the Germans to uh, to put their <laughs> just just their heads to the drawing boards and uh, and come up with a new way of doing stuff, well, a slightly better way of doing stuff. And the exciting thing for you and I is that while the Germans get their nose at a joint and they want to try and outdo Tesla, we know VW is very focused on being the number one car manufacturer in the world. Tesla's yeah. still there as the leader in EVs. All this competition, 
absolutely fantastic because it'll just drive innovation and make it better for you and I. Mm, fantastic. Drone technology has certainly brought another level of cinematography to home movie makers and TikTokers alike. They've brought that level of scale that was unheard of a decade ago. Yet a good shot still requires a fair bit of skill at the joystick. Or maybe not for much longer though. Matt, the big panning shots and the sweeping super zoom shots that used to be reserved for the big budget movies are now at the fingertips of Joe Normal. Yeah. Look out, James Cameron. <laughs> this, is, yeah? this is excellent because I know when I fly my drone, if you do try and have some motion with the drone and you're flying along and then you want to change the camera angle, there's a fair bit of practice you've got to get to get mm. things happening because you've got on thumb and fingers on one side the flying forward and the up and down and then you've got on the other one the camera angle you want to have to get that smooth motion. And what mine normally looks like is there's a bit of flying, oh, there's a bit of camera movement, oh, there's a bit of flying, there's a bit of camera movement. So you've got to practice it a fair bit. And when yeah, I've seen professional... Tough. Yeah. pilots or drone pilots there, you do see their fingers going all over the place and you're going, wow, that looks pretty impressive. So I don't want to go and spend all that time practicing. I don't want to just fiddle around with all that. I'd rather get someone in to do some drone footage for me. Or now the new Skydio 2 Plus, what you can do with this particular drone is you can map out a full route that you want to run or fly with that drone. So you say, from there, take off, fly to 20 metres above the ground, then move forward 100 metres, then turn around there, sweep around there. So you map out a route. Yeah, and then right. you say, and I want the camera to be focused over here or do a sweeping shot over there as you go. And obviously it does it all very smoothly. So you map <laughs> out the route on your phone or you can do it on a computer. You say, there we go, I'm going to do all that. There's all my camera angles. Go. And it takes off, it flies along, flies the route that you prescribe for it, does these beautiful, smooth cameras, doesn't have the jerky, I'll fly now and then move the camera now. And you look at it afterwards, and I've seen some footage done on one of these where it's actually just been programmed by an amateur, someone who didn't have any experience with flying a drone, and you looked at it and you went, wow. Pretty special. That was a professional drone pilot there. So let the technology do what the technology does. It's got all the normal things you'd have in a drone. You can fly it like a normal drone as well if you want. And it's got the obstacle avoidance in there and actually <laughs> I had my kids bought me uh, for a Father's Day a few years ago a beautiful new drone it was a fantastic drone paid lots of money for it and it had obstacle avoidance the first one I'd had with obstacle avoidance so it had a follow me feature where you could just track it on your image or a car or a bike whatever and then it would follow you so I went out <laughs> somewhere to ride my mountain bikes and a few trees around I thought oh cool I'll get it just to follow me along this will be really cool so I set it up put it up in the air focused it on me and then put the controls down and then started flying uh, dry, riding along on my bike while it followed me and it worked fantastically and then I heard it beeping and I went oh that's interesting oh well it's got obstacle avoidance there's a few trees there it'll avoid those and then I heard it crashing oh. <laughs> and what I realised when I watched the footage li later was yes it's got obstacle avoidance it was beeping because it thought it was getting a bit close to a tree but it just took one leaf which was just a oh. bit out of its vision to catch one of the rotors and that brought it crashing to the ground. So wow. that drone lasted about seven minutes oh. before it crashed <laughs> and a couple hundred dollars of repairs later, it was up and going again. So I have confidence in obstacle avoidance, but it seems to work better on solid obstacles, I've learned from that experience, than trees where it's got gaps and yeah. leaves and things where the it can see parts. Yeah. Well, that was maybe that was part of it as well. Maybe. I hadn't thought about that, but I was more thinking about the gaps between the, the leaves. But So this has got obstacle avoidance, but just from my experience, don't trust it entirely. <laughs> <laughs> I probably should have stopped when I heard it beeping. But I do like the idea that you can just program it up and let it fly your path for you. I won't worry about going through all the specs. It's got 
the things that you'd expect to see. It's got 4K camera, uh, 60 frames per second if you want. It's got 27 minutes of flight time. So it's got all the sort of features you'd expect out of a modern drone, but just being able to have that flight path pre-programmed, I think mm. is a really cool feature. Very, very cool indeed. Storing up the inexhaustible supply of solar energy around us is a solid solution to the global energy crisis. But this story is not about solar voltaics, is it, Matt? No. We're looking at storing the sun's energy for up to 18 years and then later converting to electrical energy on demand. This is crazy. It is crazy. So I'd never heard of it before. It's a system called MOST, Molecular Solar Thermal Energy Storage Systems. Sounds like something you'd read about in a comic book. It does, doesn't it? It's something like that because I'd read that and I had to go back and read Storing it again. Storing up the sun's energy. And I don't even know how they got MOST because Molecular Solar Thermal Energy Storage System sounds like M-S-T-E-S-S and they've somehow summarised that for MOST. <laughs> but anyway, doesn't I'm not going to argue with them. Just go with MOST. That's right. They've come it's up with the technology. What they did as a little experiment was they actually captured some sun on effectively one side of the world, Sweden. They went and did a bit of solar collection in Sweden, put it into this particular, uh, and I'll get into the technology in a moment, into this particular device. Then they package it up and posted it over to Shanghai. They've got a, a partnership with another university in Shanghai, and then they took this particular component that was sent over there, hooked it up to their devices, and then extracted the solar power from this is that. ridiculous. It is. This is the stuff of Marvel Comics. It is. And so you just think, well, that's just a battery. You could package up a battery over in Sweden and send it off to Shanghai. Big deal. The, the difference, or the major difference with this one, is that it doesn't lose energy like a normal battery would. It can store, they say, 18 years. Now, I don't know why they picked 18 years. Mm. I think when I've read about it, it seems like it could store it for... Almost forever. Forever's a long time, but there's 18 no years. no decay rate involved? No, it didn't seem like there's any decay rate, so I don't know why they picked mm, 18 years, okay. but I think it was just to demonstrate that it's a long time. Yeah, right. It's not like a battery that might decay a few percent per month, for example, and then you send it and wait a few months and that's it. So you could, you could catch the sunlight on your child's birth and then give it to them for their 18th birthday. <laughs> I like that. There's that's a present. Cool. Yeah. So what it is, it's a molecular structure of carbon, hydrogen, and nitrogen. So when they're hit by sunlight, they change shape into a different isomer of that particular molecule. And that's where it stores its energy in the way it's changed oh, its shape. Okay. So unless you change that shape back, it should keep that energy again forever as far so as I can Some sort out. of stimulation to then change it back. That seems to be. And then that releases some energy in doing that. Now, what it does is it releases that energy in heat. So the first thing you think is, well, that might be cool for heating things. If I've got a cold environment, I capture the sun in Sweden in summer, and then in winter, I release that energy back into my house as warmth. Well, that sounds great. But of course, you can also use thermoelectric generators that mm. take heat and generate power from oh, that yeah, heat. And, and they can be done in very small. So you can actually have this one component, one device that will capture the sunlight and by having a thermoelectric generator in it as well, release that sunlight as electricity when it's needed all built onto the one device and store that energy for, well, as long as you like, within reason. But I do love the idea of capturing sun at yeah. the birth of someone. And then there's a, there you go, there's your idea for today. There's your marketable <laughs> idea. Go and sell power for people that want something to give their child at their 80th birthday. Forget about the bottle of Grange Hermitage. It's now <laughs> here's some yeah, electricity right. from when you were born. But these but, are but the I'm thinking, sort of you know, just storing some sunlight during the summer and then using it during the winter. Um, 
uh, yeah, as, as an energy source. And I wonder just exactly how much uh, energy you're able to convert there. But anyway, sorry, yeah. I, I digress. Well, no, that's, that's all those relevant things. Now, the, the chip itself is, is very thin, so you could actually incorporate this into things like headphones or watches or mobile phones. So you could actually build the capture and then release of that energy into the device itself. Mm. But I imagine it'll be much larger things. And the experimentation they're doing at this stage is at a small scale, but a lot of these things you can scale up. If you're just changing the molecular structure of something, then surely that's fairly scalable. It's not like there's any limiting mm. factor in that. Maybe the way they generate the heat from it may be some limiting factor in there. It may have to be contained in certain thicknesses, but the reality is that this sort of technology is being developed and it's the old story about when people say, oh no, the sun doesn't shine at night and we go, oh no, it's not raining, I can turn the tap on and get water. <laughs> How is that possible? What a miracle yeah. that is. So these sort of technologies will be developed so that we will be able to generate power when the sun isn't shining even though it's solar power. That is so cool. And while we're on the subject of solar power, we've got some great news about solar voltaics as well. Records are made to be broken, and developers have just done that in terms of solar cell efficiency. Matthew, what's the new benchmark for solar cell efficiency now? Well, it's actually interesting. It's a solar cell efficiency of a certain type of solar panel. So normally we've used silicon in our solar panels, mm -hmm. and they're pretty good. They're getting up around maybe 30% is the kind of absolute maximum you that's see there. That's what I thought it was, yeah. And most researchers say that's pretty much it. Using silicon to create those solar panels, 30%, yeah, you know, maybe someone will squeeze out an extra half a percent, maybe somewhere, but you're not getting a lot of return with all the research and development being put into it, 30 percent's it. But what we really want to do is be able to work out ways to build solar panels that are cheaper and faster maybe to produce and then try and get those efficiencies high. So we've now got to the point where we've got something called a tandem solar cell that's just hit 24% efficiency. The previous record was 20%. This one here is it's 24, which obviously is better. Still not quite the same as silicon, but the big advantage of these, they're made, it's a um, perovskite. Is it the right pronunciation? Oh, I've never heard of that one before. Yeah, right. Perovskite organic tandem cells. So they used to have an efficiency around 20. They've made it up to 24% now. The great part about those solar panels is that you can actually produce them incredibly cheaply and we've got an abundance of the materials that you need to produce them. So it, it sounds like different. I mean, we think solar panels are fairly well progressed. We think we've got that technology developed fairly well, mm. but it sounds like researchers are saying, what other ways can we capture that? So that energy is hitting us what can we do with it? How can, can we convert that in other ways? Yeah, so sometimes you've got to go back to the drawing board, haven't you? Yeah. And, and say, well, we think we've gone as far as we can with silicon. What else can we do? But again, that's the big thing. A lot of people tell us incorrectly that, oh, no, making all those solar panels is destroying the planet. What else can you do? But by using different materials, that's when I think we'll find that we'll get those solar panels produced cheaper, mm. using commonly available materials, and we'll just keep progressing that whole area. So whether it be storing energy as we had with the last story or whether it be getting that power or capturing that power in the first place, there's still a huge amount of development that's occurring. Well, just just on the subject of talking about silicon there, silicon is a great semiconductor. Um, and before we realised that silicon was a good semi semiconductor, we were using germanium. Um, and because germanium was readily accessible at the time, uh, around the time of World War II, I think it was. There's a bit of history for you folks. <laughs> uh, and then we realised, oh, hang on. Well, silicon appears on the same... 
um, row, sorry, row, same column, uh, same group on the periodic table. And so they tried it with silicon. And so silicon became the material that we use for our solar panels because it was so readily accessible in sand and whatnot and it behaves like germanium. Well, it's all about just finding some other new material yeah. um, that's going to do the, the job a little bit better than what the what last one did. And people talk about silicon, you say it comes from sand and so it's commonly available, there's lots of it around, but actually getting it from sand on the beach, go and pick up a handful of sand and turn to a solar panel, yeah, that's yeah. right, there's a bit of work to be done there. And I think with using some of the organic compounds that we're talking about here, that's where that production phase seems to be a cheaper and easier process to turn it into a solar panel. In the past, not as efficient, but they're getting there. And even at 24%, if you can produce it easier and in more abundance, then maybe 24% is even good enough compared to 30% for a silicon-based solar panel. But it's development. It's happening. It's happening. And people that keep thinking this whole renewable energy thing is going to go away, well, there's a fair few people out there (laughs) working to make sure that doesn't happen. Yeah, it's just another awesome example of people being awesome. Yeah. (laughs) Speaking of being awesome, or at least not being awesome, dodgy scam texts are now a commonality. They come in daily. And they only need to catch you in a weak moment, a fleeting lapse of concentration, and and bam, you've accidentally opened the link and let the mongrels in. It happened to me last Friday night, in fact. I was distracted. I got a text from a friend which seemed legit, and if it wasn't for a quick follow-up message of warning from a husband, well, I would have been the next statistic. I was just... it was. Was just my brain wasn't firing like it needed to be. We all need a bit of help, and thankfully, service providers are now stepping in to catch at least some of the filth, Matt. Well, it is funny, you know, because I had a conversation with a friend just a couple of days ago, and he said, oh, Did you look at that video I sent you? I went, No, no, I didn't. I deleted that text ah, message. It was legitimate. <laughs> it was legitimate. <laughs> and, and he saw, oh, Click was, on this link, have a look at it. He was Hang quite offended <laughs> because he said, Well, I sent you that video. And I said, well, whenever I see a text message come through saying exactly as you said, click on this link, have a look at this video, whatever it might be, I go, that looks like a scam, I deleted it. But then he said to me, and this is where the scammers are good, then he said to me, but you knew it wasn't a scam because it came from me. Uh, I went, ah, you you don't don't understand. understand. (laughs) Spoofing is very easy. I can make a message go from you to you and it doesn't even come anywhere near from you. It's very easy to spoof a mobile phone number. Well, the thing is, is that I know this as well. You just don't click on links when people say, hey, check this out. This is (laughs) so cool. But coming from this person, I just thought, yeah, no, okay, I'm going to do it. (laughs) And, you know, as I say, I was probably a bit tired Friday night or whatever, been a big week and um, and just, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's easy to do. And again, the the scammers, the psychology they're using, it's, have you seen this video? Are you in this video? Yeah. Is this you in this video? Yeah. Look at this video. And, of course, curiosity kills the cat. We want to look at that. It's so easy just to click on that link. But what we're seeing now is Telstra, the major carrier in Australia, is rolling out an SMS scam filter. Now, they're looking for a few things. They can't just look at the number that it comes from, obviously, because they can spoof mm. any number. So they could block your number because you sent or someone spoofed your number and sent a scam message, so then they block your number. Then you can't send any more messages. You try and send a legitimate message, no one will get it. So they've got to look at a few things. Telstra, quite sensibly, are not saying what they're looking for in the scam filters that they're putting in place. Uh, They don't want to give it away. Exactly right. They don't want to say, well, here are the seven steps we're taking to stop scams, and so the scammers go, right, let's just change what we do so we don't see that. So we don't know exactly, but logically – 
where it comes from. If there's lots of messages coming from a number, they think, well, 10,000 messages from James Eddy, maybe he wasn't that busy on Friday night. Maybe <laughs> that was a, a spoof number. He's got 10,000 friends. That's right. So that's the first thing, <laughs> looking for those video links and actually checking when they see these messages come through, checking those links to see where those links go to. So a whole range of things. And again, this is fantastic news, although it comes with a slight warning that we might actually see at some stage in the future people saying, I didn't get that message you sent me. Mm. Because with any filtering, there's a possibility, Mm. low although it may be, but there's a possibility that it may actually pick up legitimate messages. But I think the carriers are trying to do something. SMS losses last year... ACCC reported they've increased by 421% over the last year. Now, that was the second year of COVID. Obviously, things went up a lot in the first year of COVID in terms of scams, people losing their money, that type of thing. But 421% increase last Mm. year means in the second year of COVID, so they'd already gone up the previous year, so they're still going up. Uh, last year, Aussies lost $100 million to phone and tech scams. So that's just in Australia, little old Australia. So that's quite incredible. That went up from $48 million in 2020. But scam text messages seem to be the real flavour of the month for scammers at the moment because they're using every method they can. We've learned about email. We've got lots of good email filters now. Phone calls, we've kind of learned to pick up that they're not really going to charge my Amazon account or cut off my Amazon account or whatever it might be. So scam text messages is the next thing. But I'm really interested to see how well it works and whether we do see people complaining that their messages aren't getting through. Because what you want with a really good filter is capturing as many illegitimate messages as possible while letting 100% of legitimate messages go through. Mm. Now, that's a pretty big ask. You're probably going to capture just a little... Bit, maybe well, a few for of the number messages. of links that I get sent, or you know, videos that I get sent from legitimate friends and whatnot, uh, it probably you know constitutes a big blanket sort of sweeping clearance. And then if people have got legitimate stuff, they, they can say, "Go and check your your junk or whatever." Yeah, but you don't see these won't come through as junk. Oh, these right, will they just be they'll be deleted at the carrier white, level, yeah, so you right. won't even see them because. SMS, it's a pretty simple technology. And yeah. 1992, I think, was the first text message ever sent. It said, Merry Christmas to a guy from Vodafone, Merry Christmas to his boss. So it's a really simple concept about sending a message. So we don't have these complicated things like email where you've got your junk mailbox and you've got yeah, all right. these technologies set up there at the user end. So this is the carrier saying, we're just going to cut it off at its knees. We're just not going to let it through to anyone at all if we think it's going to be a scam we'll just stop it there and I do apologise James I normally I'm trying to get through the whole nine topics without some scam messaging or <laughs> no, negative no, stories. Sometimes it's got to be done. That's right. I made it through eight and couldn't quite couldn't quite make it through all nine. <laughs> so but those of you at home playing bingo right now, congratulations. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> but hopefully this is a good news story about scams. We've got better things to do with our lives, James, and oh, to put do. up with rubbish coming through, deleting right. it or being tricked into the clicking on something, all those things. We've got, we've got fun things to do, not muck around with this sort of rubbish. Absolutely. And that rounds off another episode of Tech Talk, folks. Thank you, linesmen. Thank you, ball boys. Matt, that felt pretty good. A yeah, couple of cool good. things to look out for, a little bit of community service, and nobody got hurt. Nice one. <laughs> That's good. I'm James Eddy, and it's been a pleasure bringing you Tech Talk with Matthew Dickerson this week. I hope you can join us again in another, in another week's time. Until then, find a like button and click it, or pop a comment in a box somewhere about us, or get a friend to subscribe to the show as well. I'll thank you for it in the long run. Just don't send someone a message that says, click on this link. <laughs> That's right.